Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. There's no getting around it. August is hot down here in Louisiana, so we thought a virtual vacation in Scandinavia just might provide a little chill. We begin with chef and restaurateur Marcus Samuelson. His Scandinavian connection is that although Ethiopian-born, he was raised by adoptive parents in Sweden, giving him an unusual worldview. The James Beard Award winner and Top Chef Master is also author of the best-selling memoir, Yes Chef. We sit down for an extended visit with Marcus as he shares the story of his remarkable journey from his childhood in Ethiopia and Sweden to international renown. Then we speak with Swedish chef Magnus Nielsen, who showcases the diversity of Scandinavian cuisine in his enormous tome, The Nordic Cookbook. After our adventure with Magnus, our Nordic food investigation concludes with the great culinary academic, Dara Goldstein, whose cookbook, Fire and Ice, examines this region of extremes. So sit down and chill down. There's plenty of aquavit to go around on this week's Louisiana Eats. In 2012, Chef Marcus Samuelson was on top of the world. He just won Top Chef Masters, prepared the first state dinner for President Obama's White House, and as executive chef at Aquavit in New York, became the youngest chef to earn three stars from the New York Times. That year, he also released his memoir, Yes Chef. Shortly after the book's publication, Marcus stopped by the Louisiana Eat Studios to discuss his life and career. His story begins in rural Ethiopia. At the age of one, he, along with his mother and older sister, contracted tuberculosis. His mother walked 75 miles with her two children to be hospitalized in Addis Ababa, where she died. Soon after, Marcus was adopted by a Swedish couple who helped foster his love of food. Well, my food memories really began in Sweden. Those are the food memories I remember, but I do think my food DNA started in Ethiopia. Although I was a kid, adopted, I wanted those first pages for the reader really to understand where I came from and who I am. And really those first two, three years is really setting that, right? The fact that my birth mother, totally she gave the ultimate sacrifice in walking us from the village to the hospital. We had TB. Me and my sister survived. But then there was a time where there was a nurse in the hospital that just said, what are we going to do with these two kids? One is two, one is five. We can't just send them home. So she took us in. 
She already had three kids herself, and she took us in. Without her, I don't know where we would have gone. So it's our life has so many different things. Where so you many. think it's only you, it's not you. You're here on a completely different journey. What I love about the kitchen is that it's very similar to being on a team or being in a band. You're part of something. There's a band leader, there's a coach, there's a chef. Yes, chef. Mm -hmm. And it's us against them type of mentality. And, uh, you know, I've realized that cooking is my first vocabulary. It's not English, it's not Swedish, it's not German. Food and cooking is my first vocabulary. I was shocked. There, there were a bunch of things that just really made me take a step back and think when I read your book. And in 1993, when you finally achieved your goal of going to do that stage in mm. France at the three-star Michelin-rated Georges Blanc, mm. you discovered that the French word for black, negre, was also the word they commonly used for a low-level kitchen assistant, and nobody thought that that was offensive or wrong. Or but how, how did that make you feel? But what did you think? First of all, the narrative of the black chef didn't exist in Europe. So everywhere I went, the labor of a black culinary didn't exist. So I first had to show them that I was not there to steal or nothing's going to happen if I work with them. And like you, you're talking about the narrative of the black laborer didn't exist. So that was the first hurdle. Then when they realized I had everything in common with them, I just wanted to become a chef, just like them. And then, then they realized that I worked really hard, then it was all okay. But I just needed a chance in. I mean, mind you, before I got to Georges Blanc, I wrote the 35 three-star restaurants and got 35 no's. Mm. When I got yes for the first time, I didn't even get into the kitchen. And I had to go back on the train back to Sweden. So by the time I got to Georges Blanc in France, I felt like, you know what? At this point, nothing's going to stop me. And as negative as those experiences can be, it also makes your knife sharper. You know, in food, I like bitter food. But in life, you can't get stuck on bitter. Mm -hmm. You can't. And it's constantly this battle on how to challenge us as a black professional, as a person of color, as a minority. But I also realized that it made me more focused. I mean, the undertone in Yashev is definitely talking about race as a opportunity to, I want to offer an opportunity for us to talk about it, not to just go like, you're wrong, I'm right, all of a No, here is a complex scenario. Here's how I navigated through it. This is my experience. How can we move from here? And mind you, I moved to the States a year after Rodney King, basically. Mm. I felt that America was the most diverse place, and I was right. And yet, you were often rejected in kitchens in America anyway because of your color, too. But rejection is so much part of life, right? You could yeah. be, be a woman and they want to have brown hair when it should be blonde. Or it should be like green eyes when they should be blue. Or, <laughs> I mean, rejection happens to all people. But it's about what do you do with that, right? Yeah. How do you turn that around and convert it into an opportunity? Our only way is, yes, chef. I mean, I remember when somebody said yes, chef to me the first time. That response that I've been then saying for 10 years straight, I jumped. <laughs> so the idea about the book is also to have the reader to understand this cosmos that might look crazy for somebody, but it's also a highly emotional place. I have a 50-50 rule, which means I want to have equal amount of women as men in the kitchen. 
I have a diverse kitchen. I have people from all over the world coming. And for example, when I did the state dinner for Barack Obama, I took pride in bringing 10 cooks, five of them women, five of them young men. I just try to always be about how can I be committed to the excellence but not manage from that point of view. The lead up to that was really about, I started to look at research. What have these state dinners been? And up until that point, all state dinners been French. I was like, wait a minute. If it's the prime minister of India and he's vegetarian, shouldn't we have Indian food? It made sense to me to just bring it down to a family party. I started to look at the first lady's initiative of the garden. So I knew maybe we should be a vegetarian course, maybe she should salad course be there. I thought about these 400 people, maybe 20 or 30 of them knew each other, the rest didn't. So I wanted to start with a very humble breaking bread. So we did a bread course, chapatis and cornbread. So I started to look at this dinner completely different. And then we started really introducing Indian flavors, American food, American wines, and an opportunity to break bread. That was the goal for me with the dinner, and it went really, really well. I'm super excited about it. But um, it was also the day when I knew the title of the book. <laughs> because after the chance, after we were done with cooking the dinner, and we were just tired, they told us, hey, the president's going to come and say good night and thank you for the dinner. So my team goes into the special room, and the first lady and the president comes, shakes everybody's hand, and we just thank you for giving us the opportunity. And then my, one of my uh, chefs, Michael, he gets so nervous when he's going to meet the president. So he just screams out in the middle of the room, yes, chef! <laughs> and everyone, even including like Secret Service, like looking around like, who is this guy? What's going on? I'm like, I'm sorry, Mr. President. Just <laughs> thank you very much. And we just left. A consistent theme in both your work mm -hmm. and in the book is when you write and talk about Chasing flavor. Yes. What does that mean to you, chasing flavor? Wow. Well, chasing flavor is my life commitment. And, and, and as I started to know about myself, that's why I divided Yes Chef up in boy, chef, man, because there was a lot of sides of me that I didn't know. Like, for example, I knew much more about Asian food in the mid-90s than I knew about African food. And being in New York, not having a lot of money, I went to... Chinatown, I went to Queens, I went to all these ethnic neighbors, and I learned a lot about flavors and cuisines and authenticity in food, and I converted it into my Scandinavian food and found similarities. But when people asked me about African food and I didn't know about it, I felt a little bit ashamed. So I couldn't add that layer of Berber and Midmitta and Injera and African curries and couscous until I went to Ethiopia. That was Marcus Samuelson speaking with us about his memoir, Yes Chef, back in 2012. When we return from a short break, New Orleans writer Lola Eli joins the conversation to tell us about the experience of bringing Marcus back to his Ethiopian birthplace. Stay tuned.
Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. If you're just joining us, we're revisiting our 2012 conversation with celebrity chef and restaurateur Marcus Samuelson. When we left off, Marcus was lamenting that his European upbringing didn't allow for any exposure to African cuisine, which precipitated a trip to Ethiopia to learn about that culture. Writer Lolas Eli joined the conversation to tell us about how he and Marcus came to make that journey together in the year 2000. In 2000, you pitched a story to Gourmet Magazine about Marcus traveling to Africa for the first time to explore his roots. How did you and Marcus connect in the first place? Gideon? No, Bernard Carmouche, who was chef de cuisine at (laughs) Emeralds. There you go, there you go. Um... The great Gene Borg always said his favorite restaurant when he's critic of the Times Picayune was the one where they knew him, where the yeah. chef would come out or whatever. So I asked Bernard, I'm going to New York, where should I eat? He said, You should eat my friend Marcus's uh-huh. place. Mm-hmm. So I went to Aquavit mm-hmm. and I was blown away. Yeah. And I'm still not entirely sure how much of that was just not knowing Swedish food mm-hmm. and how much of that <laughs> was Marcus doing something incredible yeah. with Swedish food. Yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't matter. But we also had, we closed the restaurant that night. Yeah. We left after the busboys and yeah. cleanup people. And um, we started talking about the possibility mm. of going to Ethiopia. Mm. I spoke at the Southern Food Raiser Alliance. Jane Lear, my editor at Gourmet, mm. heard me. I pitched a story about Marcus. They loved it, but they said, can you do a piece about Leah Chase for the February issue? Mm-hmm. November, I'm writing about um, Leah Chase. December, I'm on a plane with Marcus. Mm-hmm. Marcus, this was your first trip back to Ethiopia. Yeah. Yeah, I started to sort of find out and be comfortable more about my Ethiopian self in New York. I started to get uh, understand the rituals, the music, the food, going to weddings, going being part of funerals, all these other stuff that I couldn't experience really in Sweden. And all of these sort of led up to this trip. But still when we went, I didn't know a lot. And uh, it was an out-of-body experience because I felt like a tourist but I didn't look like one. When you're in that situation, you pick up other things, right? When you don't speak the language and don't know what's happening culturally, things that you understand become so important, like soccer balls or like enjoying a beer or understanding the spice blend of Berbera quickly. Things like this that you can hold on to become so important. Lois, what do you remember showing Marcus in Ethiopia. What were the real lightning bolt moments that you shared with him there? It was the market. 
And I wish I could say that I had shown it to him. Mm -hmm. But Gideon Kifle, our, our mutual friend and a mm -hmm. photographer, and the first person I really hung out with in Ethiopia, yeah. we go to the market, and Gideon understood how to go several times and kind of slowly insinuate yourself in the market. So what's unimaginable in our neat-ordered American supermarkets is the way in which these markets are neatly ordered and colorful. Mounds of orange lentils next to mounds of green lentils. Mm -hmm. And so the market is an attack of sensations, but it's also the nerve center of the community. Yeah. This is where you meet, this is where you buy food, this is where you learn stuff. And so this is everything that Marcus is about in one place, yeah. both the people and the food. I mean, that market, when you know a market of the city, you know the city in a way, right? It's a beat, it's a pulse, there's actually a reflection of the city. It doesn't matter if you do this in the Japanese fish market in Tokyo, or if you go to the market in my town in Gothenburg, because it's quickly understand what is currency in that country. So what is your currency? I come from a fishing village in Sweden when you knew, everyone knew the price of shrimp, the price of mackerel. Of course you knew that. So you get back to the United States, and I understand that Lola's then became a little bit of a matchmaker when it comes to one of the great loves of your life with New Orleans' mm -hmm. beloved mm -hmm. Leah Chase. Yeah. Lola's, what did you do? Well, they had met already mm -hmm. before uh, Marcus and I got this talking. One mm -hmm. of the first things he said to me when he, when we started talking about New Orleans was that he'd met Leah Chase mm -hmm. at this Black Chef's event and how much he adored her. Mm -hmm. And he was plotting to come to New Orleans at some point. Well, then we came here and did a piece for... Savoy Magazine. Savoy Magazine, right. We did a piece on Marcus and Leah. It was incredible. She also cooked a wonderful meal for us while we were here. And a lot of it was sort of the evolution of a kind of family feeling among us. Marcus not only became acquainted with our own queen of Creole cooking, Leah Chase, but was also influenced by Harlem's soul food queen, Sylvia Wood, owner of Sylvia's Soul Food Restaurant. I asked him about their similarities and what they imparted to him before they passed on. First of all, they're very similar in many ways. Humble beginnings, work ethic, raised so many families, not just our own family, but the families that the restaurant creates. Being a window in for others to come to community maybe others wouldn't come to. Mm -hmm. Introducing people of that community to a world that maybe that community wouldn't even be exposed to. So for me, better ambassadors of American food and telling a narrative, in Sylvia's case, from Carolinas, the southerner coming up, and presenting his place of home in Harlem, being a mirror of one part of African-American cooking history. Leah, a different story, but being here in New Orleans. So I just think that both of them you can look at, for me, everything but a chef owner. This concept of chef owner, we think that's 15, 20 years old. No, she started out in the late 40s. Much, much, much has been made about your move to Harlem. Yeah. Explain the role that you are looking to play in Harlem. You know, for me, it was really about after 9-11 and the economic dip, Right, I really I started asking myself questions. If this is what I'm going to do, what meaningful can I do? Well, changing the footprint of dining and bridging the city of New York in terms of food, I always thought that was something that I could actually participate in. 
So I was like, I can't just open a restaurant in Harlem. I have to move to Harlem. So I moved to Harlem. And for the first five years, I just walked around in the neighborhood a lot. Started to understand what's El Barrio about, the Puerto Rican, Spanish Harlem. But wait a minute, there's a Mexican community there. There's a large center of African-American heritage. But it's also a Caribbean. There's a Jewish. Even further east, you have the old Italian neighborhood. There's new people coming up, new young families. So all is very complex. It's not just one kind. Why should the food I'm in is just because you go north of 96th Street be lowered? Absolutely. There were so many questions that I want to ask myself. So I was like, you know what? I can't open a restaurant now in New Harlem. I had to understand it better. So it took me five years to sort of feel comfortable enough saying, you know what? I can do it. Then it took me another two years to find the place and build it out. And then 2010, uh, on a cold night in December, we opened. I give one cooking class for free in my community in Harlem every month. So about six months ago when I gave one in the local YMCA, I was doing this chicken salad with couscous and feta cheese. And this kid came up to me, 13-year-old kid in Harlem, came up to me. said, Chef, stop. Is that cottage cheese or feta cheese? I was like, wait a minute. Uh, it's feta. How, how would you know that? Food Network? Oh. And it just dawned to me that, wow, there's a whole generation coming into food ingredients in a different way. So as long as we bring them into it, but hopefully also we start making better choices in terms of eating. And I think that's the challenge. We watch more sports doesn't mean we can become healthier. So we got to figure out if you're into food, great, then figure out how to get healthier, how to have farmer's market that makes sense in inner cities, affordable and culture relevant. So I think there is an aspect of it that could be good, but it's also an aspect of it that is very confusing. You know, I got into cooking because of a love for my craft. I'm going to be in cooking when it's not, when maybe the celebrity things moved on to plumber or something like that. I'm still going to cook. <laughs> oh boy, I can't wait to meet the celebrity plumbers. <laughs> really, thank you. It was such an honor and a treat to have you here in the studio with us. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you. That was James Beard Award-winning chef and author of Yes, Chef, Marcus Samuelson, speaking to Louisiana Eats in 2012. Herr Merck säger att tiden är krigisk och krass Hos Kalle, 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 Kalle på stången Det är bomber som finns här i jorda av glass Hos Kalle, 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 Kalle på stången Ja, världen den röstar på tusende sätt Acclaimed chef Magnus Nielsen is known for his ability to use foods foraged and preserved in his native Sweden to make culinary magic. While Magnus is Swedish, he took on the whole of Scandinavia and beyond in his celebrated publication, The Nordic Cookbook. This isn't just any cookbook. Through stunning photos and hundreds of recipes, the tome illustrates the way Nordic food traditions emerge from the cold, harsh winters into the long days of summer when the sun never sets. 
Chef Magnus joined us in the studio shortly after the book's publication in 2015, following three years of research and many conversations with a persistent publisher. So I understand that the publisher approaches you and wants you to write this book and that you didn't really want to write this book. No, I didn't because I was, and I was kind of offended because most people in the Nordic region, they don't identify themselves as being Nordic, nor do I, because I'm Swedish. And I felt it was a bit like taking some German and some Italian and some Portuguese and some French cooking and just putting that into a book and calling it sort of the European cookbook. But then I realized after kind of going back and forth a little bit that it was one of the main reasons why the book should actually exist because almost no one knows what the Nordic region is. And if you don't even know that, you can't really know much about this food culture either. So basically, uh, the whole point of the book is to be a, a document of the food culture as a whole and to explain, you know, how the different cultures within it come together and how they also differ from each other and why. And to me, the goal was to simply make a selection of recipes as representative as possible for as large part of the region as possible. Walk us through the great diversity that you found in your research and that we can find between the pages of the Nordic cookbook. Well, you know, uh, the region itself is vast um, and has a lot of different climates in it. And because of the, you know, its geographical size, you're also going to have a lot of different cultures kind of sharing this region. And it's not a, um, the Nordic regions as such, it's not a cultural region. It's just a geographical construction. Um, so you have countries in it that up until quite recently in historical terms had very, very little contact with each other. You have Finland in the very east. And then in between Finland and Sweden, you're going to have a little island called Åland. You're going to have Sweden, Norway, Denmark, the Faroe Islands, Iceland and Greenland. Uh, and you can just imagine the difference, you know, from, let's say, uh, southeastern parts of Finland, which borders on Russia, and then Greenland in the west. Now, in the book, I'd like to know how you picked the recipes. Because I have to say, I've never come across a cookbook that included recipes for seal, <laughs> whale, and puffin. To me, it was really important that this sort of became a document of like the real Nordic food culture as it looks today. Recipes like that, even though to me they're also very exotic because we don't eat any of those animals in Sweden, for example. Um, but because they exist in other parts of the region and they're culturally significant in those parts, they kind of have to be included in the book. Um, and I don't think that anyone is going to cook those recipes. But it doesn't really matter, you know, um, because the, the book has so many recipes. There are 730-something of them. And I actually, I counted, and I think that about 50 no one is ever going to cook for either that reason, you know, that you don't have the produce or because they are very, very complicated. Um, and the important thing is that the remaining 600-and-something recipes, they are commonly used on a much broader front by more people in the region, and they're more accessible. Um, the one thing that's clear is that there's not a single recipe in the book that's mine that I kind of made. Uh, they're all collected from other people in the region and people who cook them on an everyday basis. One of the first things I did was to put up a website uh, where people could submit recipes and answer to questions about how they looked up on their own food culture. Uh, and that was very, very interesting because I got like at least 100 recipes for pickled herring uh, submitted by a person who said that they were the best recipes for pickled herring ever, ever. Uh, and it turned out that most of them were actually 
pretty much similar. <laughs> but they were they were all someone's best recipe ever. So that was kind of fun. Um, and I also saw that the way people see their own food culture, how they perceive it, is uh, quite different from how it actually is. For at least half of the year, the climate is so incredibly harsh <laughs> that the way I understand the food of your whole region is that a lot of it has to do with survival. Well, it used to, and, and, and it's something that still is very visible, because like anywhere in the Nordic region, you're going to have four very distinctive seasons, and one of them, the winter, you're not going to be able to harvest any plant materials for food. Um, and because of this, you have to kind of uh, produce an excess in summer and store it for winter. And this is something that even today, when you can you know, fly things in from everywhere and uh, when it's not really done for survival anymore, it still um, characterizes the food culture to a, a really large extent. Tell us some of the things that might surprise people about the preservation methods, like um, lamb being cured with no salt, only air-dried. Yeah. So, like, that particular technique, for example, that you talk about now, it's actually not from where I grew up. It's from the Faroe Islands, um, which is a, a group of islands uh, located in the North Atlantic in between Scotland and Iceland. Um, and because they were so remotely located uh, before modern shipping and flying and all that stuff, um, most of their traditional preservation techniques are saltless because they couldn't transport salt there from mainland Europe very cheaply. And it's quite interesting because if you look at, like, where I grew up in the more central parts of Scandinavia, we've had access to plenty of salt since forever. And in the same way as you would find in southern Europe, most of our preservation techniques are centered around that, you know. Uh, cheese and olives and ham and salted herring and all those things, they share the same characteristic. They, they're preserved in the same way, simply by adding salt and inducing lactobacillus fermentation, which produces lactic acid. I understand that a big part of the culture is flatbread. Mm. Does flatbread vary from place to place, or is it all pretty much alike? All breads vary quite a lot from place to place, like any other kind of food cultural expression. And what's interesting with the flatbread is that it's a true expression of, you know, the circumstances historically in the regions where they are produced. And in the Nordics, you can see, for example, that in the south, in the more urban areas, like from Stockholm and down south, you know, across Denmark and so on, uh, it's more common with loaves of bread because they have dense enough population also in a historical perspective to have bakeries. Uh, further up north, like where I grew up, uh, we have today a population density of one person per square kilometer, <laughs> um, meaning that you can't really have bakeries, meaning that you have to produce bread that you can store for a long time because no one is going to fire up their baking oven on a daily basis just to bake bread for themselves. And this is kind of the idea with the flatbread, and most often they're actually dried. And when they're dried, how long will they last like that? Uh, years. And after being baked in the wood fire oven, you just stack them to dry and you leave them like that. And you can either just break pieces off and make a sandwich with it, or you can just sort of crumble it into a soup or into cultured milk or something like that. I was very charmed by the concept that in these ovens where there's this hot, hot, flat stone mm. where the flatbreads are being baked, once a farm family will finish, yeah. they will invite their neighbors to come yeah. over and <laughs> use their precious heat. Yeah. Now, that was how it, like, how it actually really functioned in the villages, uh, especially in Sweden in the old days, because all of the farms, they were located around the kind of core of the village. Um, 
so everyone was pretty close together. So it was quite convenient if someone fired up their baking oven that instead of just sort of wasting the heat when you were done, you know, your neighbors and your neighbors' neighbors could come over and continue baking on the heat or adding a little bit of extra firewood and kind of just starting it all over again. Uh, and that has kind of disappeared a little bit. It still exists in some villages like mine, where the farms are still located in roughly that pattern. But because of um, laws uh, concerning how to divide uh, property with inheritance and stuff like that, mm. little by little, <laughs> all of these farms just became smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So a couple of hundred years ago, uh, the state had to go in and um, basically require all the farms and then uh, remake all the layouts again to make it efficient. And this has happened in many places in Europe. And, uh, and, and I think that kind of, in most villages, put a stop to this tradition because it just all of a sudden became too far between the farm to be practical. Well, I'm so honored. And I really hope that sometime in this great big world, our paths cross again. So thank you so much for making the time for Th- us. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and please do come and visit sometime. <laughs> I'd love to. That was Chef Magnus Nielsen author of the Nordic Cookbook, speaking to us in 2015. What's the traditional drink of Scandinavia? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from the Ralph Brennan Restaurant Group. The Napoleon House in New Orleans French Quarter is now offering dine-in as well as takeout Tuesday through Saturday, including toasty warm mufaladas, gumbo, frozen Pimm's Cups, and more. They may be reached online at napoleonhouse.com and at 504-524-9752. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, Breadings, Boils, New Air Fry Mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Louisiana's North Shore is turning up the heat for the annual Tammany Taste of Summer. Plan your escape to St. Tammany Parish for delicious adventures in dining, hotels, and other places to play in Abita Springs, Covington, Folsom, Madisonville, Mandeville, and Slidell from August 1st through August 31st. Learn how to get your own Tammany Taste of Summer Pass by visiting TammanyTaste.com. Louisiana's North Shore, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century.
cookbook author Dara Goldstein, the icy climes of the Nordic region represent warmth and comfort. Although she grew up an ocean away from Scandinavia, Dara's close ties to Norse culture inspired her to write Fire and Ice, classic Nordic cooking. Her critically acclaimed book showcases the diverse food of the region through over 100 recipes. Dara joined us in 2015 to talk about the food traditions of what she calls a region of extremes, a place of perpetual winter nights and endless summer days. It's an extraordinary place. I often question why I am drawn to cold and dark places, and I think part of it is because of the intensity. It Even in the winter when there's snow, it's actually quite bright because there's a radiance from the snow and from the ice, and there's a sort of magic to the winter season that uh, I find very compelling. Dara, I'm fascinated by the name of your book as well. Why is it called Fire and Ice? I thought about the extremes that we've just been talking about. And what really characterizes being in the far north? So you have the cold season and there's ice. And what do you do? You want to get warm, whether it's through the heat of a fire or through warming drinks like glug, which is mulled wine and has this wonderful onomatopoetic name as though you're gulping down this wine. So I think that the fire is the lure when the weather is so cold, but it also is the lure in the summertime when you grill. And one of the great characteristics of food from the Nordic region is that preserving it has been so important just for survival. I know it's all very trendy now, but historically it was what had to be done so you could get through the winter. And smoking is one of those ways of preserving. How long has the food of Scandinavia captivated you? For a very long time. I first went there in 1972 to study at University of Helsinki. I felt a rhythm of the seasons that I had never experienced. And then in 1980, just after I'd gotten married, my husband and I lived in Stockholm for a year. So that was my second deep immersion in the Nordic countries. This is a huge region. Would you talk a little bit to the similarities and the distinct regional differences between Finland, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark? Yes. Scandinavians are strictly defined as uh, Norwegians, Danes, and Swedes. And they don't usually include Finland in the fold which is why this is Nordic and not, uh, strictly speaking, Scandinavian. All of these countries have very long coastlines, and so they all share an appreciation for fish. There are lots of lakes, particularly in Finland, and so freshwater fish is also a very important source of protein. What you find as you travel from east to west, Finland uh, was an outlier in the sense 
of not being as uh, closely tied to Western Europe as the other countries. And it also uh, was part of the Russian Empire for quite a while. And so there are influences that you can see from that part of the world and certain similarities. As you travel towards Denmark, um, going west and also south, there's a stronger influence from, uh, say, French cuisine. But the thing that is very neat about the new Nordic movement is that now even the classically trained chefs are looking to their own traditions and their own culture to see the treasures that are actually there. I would love if you would address crayfish versus crawfish because just as in Louisiana we've got a huge culture ritual way of eating and partying with crawfish they have that in the Nordic countries as well don't they they do and it used to be so institutionalized in particularly Sweden and Finland it used to be a very specific day at the end of July or the beginning of August when the crayfish season opened. Now it's a lot more flexible, but that is the season. It is high summer. Uh, people sit outside and boil these huge vats of the crayfish with lots and lots of dill. So the flavor profile is different from the way you uh, do the crawfish in Louisiana. There is native crayfish that uh, lives in the rivers in Sweden and Finland. But unfortunately, in the very beginning of the 20th century, it fell prey to a, a kind of fungus, and the numbers were vastly depleted. And so it, it became expensive not just because of that, but because people were overfishing, as people throughout the world tend to do whenever they find anything they love. And so quotas were put on the number of uh, the crayfish that could be caught. There's still a lot of crayfish imported, but uh, the Swedes and the Finns tend to like the indigenous one best and will pay a pretty penny for it. Well, it sounds like dill is the big difference between a crawfish and a crayfish party in uh, Louisiana or in Scandinavia. Right. Yeah, you put um, the whole heads, the crowns of the dill in when you boil the crayfish and then you let it sit. And obviously there's a lot of salt and you can uh, put in some other spices if you like, but you let it sit for hours so that it steeps and the crayfish gets infused with this wonderful dill flavor. Now, another thing I want to hear about are the artisanal tar products that come from oh. Finland. That doesn't sound too tasty to me. I know. But if you think about it, if you have a cold, you might suck a eucalyptus drop. Uh, you may or may not like it, but a lot of people like a menthol flavor. So if you think about tar, not as the uh, stuff that is used to pave the roads, which does sound totally disgusting, but if you think about it as the sap, the resin that comes from trees that then can be boiled down, then it sounds intriguing. Mm -hmm. Did I convince you? You'd convinced me. G give me okay. an example of what an artisanal tar product might be that we would eat. 
I have to admit that the only one that I really like is tar ice cream. Tar ice um, cream? What color yeah. is it? Have you ever had tobacco ice cream? No, ma'am. Oh, <laughs> you got me there, really too. It's really wonderful. I don't think it's um, commercially marketed, but um, it's ice cream that just has this hint of tar flavor to it, and it's fantastic. They also make a tar liqueur, which I find too intense and too cloying. There are tar chocolates, and probably the most famous product that's still being made in one town in Finland is a tar bread. It is a very, very dark uh, bread that has some tar syrup added to it. But that's what I love about Finland. I feel like you can go there and really test your palate to the extreme, but in a way that, to me, connects with things that are natural so that it's not just food adventuring. It really, there's a reason for it. They had a big tar industry there. So if you have this product, then you also think of other ways to use it. Well, I I would really like to end the conversation by just giving you, as best I can virtually, a hug. Because, Dara, even hugs come from there. Oh, Poppy, you really read this book closely. So that's a perfect way to end. I think with this idea of Danish hygge, it is a concept that doesn't have an exact translation in English, but it basically means being in a cold, wintry environment when it's not so nice outdoors, kind of gloomy outside, but you have created this beautiful warmth inside through a fire or candlelight, through glug, which is this mulled wine, or perhaps even better, schnapps, uh, which is uh, aquavit, distilled uh, vodka-like liquor that is often flavored with caraway, uh, or you can, I like to add cardamom and ginger to it for a really nice warming drink. But the most important component of that besides the food is the companionship. So it's camaraderie, it's spending the time with friends, and it's an idea of coziness, sort of ultimate coziness with people you like being with, with food that is warming. And it comes from the old Norse root that produced our word hug. So hugs to you too. Big hugs from Louisiana Eats. Dara, thank you for taking us on this fun, vicarious trip to Scandinavia and the Nordic countries. Thank you. Puppy, thank you so much. It's always a joy to talk to you. That was our conversation with Dara Goldstein, author of Fire and Ice, Classic Nordic Cooking, recorded in 2015. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Join us at our free Zoom event, Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunch and Drag Queen Story Hour from Home. The event will take place on Zoom on Saturday, August 28th at noon Central Daylight Savings Time and is sponsored by Crystal Hot Sauce. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor.
To sign up, visit poppytooker.com. And although I'm only popping up this month online, Laveau Contraire and her bevy of beauties will be hosting Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunch at Tujac's Restaurant on Sunday, August 29th. Call Tujac's for reservations, 504-525-8626. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Don't forget to subscribe to Louisiana Eats for extra content, including exclusive podcasts and more. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods and wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mullady. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Cooker Broadcasting.